Let's open the Scriptures to the Gospel of John, chapter 10, in the first place, and then Revelation, chapter 7. This afternoon, we'll be focusing on the doctrine of the church as Scripture reveals that to us, and as that is summarized by the church in the Belgic Confession, Article 27, and the Lord Jesus speaks about His church under the figure or the image of a flock, John 10. We'll read the first 21 verses. And there the Lord says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? From here we turn to the book of Revelation, last book in Scripture, chapter 7, Revelation 7, and we'll read the verses 9 through 17. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I invite you to turn with me. Uh, first to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 21, and then we'll go to the Belgic Confession. Just uh, want to add in question and answer 54. So that's Book of Praise, page 535. Each confession approaches the subject of the church from a slightly different angle, even as Scripture has lots of different angles and perspectives on the church. So question 54, we confess that Scripture teaches the following. What do you believe concerning the holy Catholic Christian Church? I believe that the Son of God, out of the whole human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, defends, and preserves for Himself, by His Spirit and Word, in the unity of the true faith, a church chosen to everlasting life. And I believe that I am and forever shall remain a living member of it. Now we go to the Belgic Confession, Article 27, page 510. We believe and profess one Catholic or universal church, which is a holy congregation and assembly of the true Christian believers who expect their entire salvation in Jesus Christ, are washed by His blood, and are sanctified and sealed by the Holy Spirit. This church has existed from the beginning of the world and will be to the end, for Christ is an eternal King who cannot be without subjects. This holy church is preserved by God against the fury of the whole world, although for a while it may look very small and as extinct in the eyes of man. Thus, during the perilous reign of Ahab, the Lord kept for himself 7,000 persons who had not bowed their knees to Baal. Moreover, this holy church is not confined or limited to one particular place or to certain persons, but is spread and dispersed throughout the entire world. Yet it is joined and united with heart and will in one and the same spirit by the power of faith. That's as far as our confession goes. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, what does the Bible mean 
when it refers to this thing called the church. This was a question, uh, no small question in the days of the Reformation, which is why our confession spends six articles speaking about the church. There was a lot of confusion in those days, and there's a lot of confusion still today. Some would say there's more confusion today since there are now so many more different denominations than there was then. And that makes people wonder, what really is the church? Is everything that calls itself church truly a church? How are we supposed to think of the, the churches around us with whom we have no contact, no relationship? Are they all false? Are they all true? Some, however, are kind of getting tired about talking about the church, want to set aside discussions about the church. There are those who, who say, is the church really important at all? If I have true faith but never join a church, is that really a big deal? Even if I withdraw from a true church, is that such a problem? God will still save me anyway, won't He? And isn't that what counts? With all these questions and many more like them swirling about, it's good for us to get back to the basics, get back to the simple truth from the Word of God, which the Belgic is very careful to summarize faithfully. Like the Holy Spirit in, in Scripture does for other matters, so too with the church He uses pictures to teach us about it, about it. For example, He inspired Paul to describe the church as God's household, elsewhere as the bride of Christ. Sometimes it's called the family of God. Well, in our reading this afternoon, Jesus speaks of the church as His flock. And that'll be our focus today. We'll use that image. There, just as there is one shepherd, so there is one flock into which all His sheep are being gathered. So I bring you this word of the Lord. The good shepherd gathers one flock for salvation. He gathers one flock for salvation. We'll take a look at the gathering sheep, the other sheep, and the secure sheep. Article 27 begins in the same way that almost every other article in the confession begins, and it's worthy of note. We believe and we profess one Catholic or universal church. Those words, we believe, are important in every one of the articles. That's how the, we began in Article 1, carries on right through to the end, Article 37. So all these things that we are confessing and professing in the Belgian Confession, they are a matter of faith. What we're summarizing in this document are not facts discovered by scientific investigation. They're not ideas reached by human reasoning. These are truths that the Lord God has put forth in His Word and which we accept by faith. True faith is a sure knowledge that all that God has revealed in the Scripture is true 
It's also the conviction that all of God's promises are true, not just for the, the people of God generally, but also for me personally. So faith, it rests on trusting. Faith, it rests on accepting what God says in Scripture as true. I mention this because so often we are tempted to reason out what the church is based on our experience, based on our observation. If I look around the world today and I see hundreds of denominations which go by the name of church, I am tempted to think that the church is anything but one. I don't see one church. I meet believers here and there, people who profess faith in Christ but who belong to no church. Or maybe they belong to a church that holds to some unbiblical teachings. And then I'm tempted to think that the church must be all these individual believers, wherever they might be on their own around the world or in different assemblies. You see, I'm tempted to conclude based on what I experience what I see that, that Christ church, it's, it's got to be something actually invisible, something that cannot be seen, something that really only God knows. And then the best is, the best we can do is bump into it here and there when we meet a few Christians or maybe a portion of it when we come to church on Sunday. But let's not fall into that temptation, brothers and sisters. This is a matter of faith what we're taught in Scripture, not what we experience. Just like it is when it comes to the matter of the forgiveness of our sins, right? You don't want to go by what you feel. You want to go by what the Lord says in His Word. If I went by what I feel when it comes to the forgiveness of sins, I might start to think, well, I have to earn forgiveness. And forgiveness wouldn't come unless my, my works were sufficient and my faith was strong enough. But Scripture teaches that forgiveness comes when you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Full stop. I believe that. That's by faith. I accept that. And so I know my sins are forgiven. I don't go by feel. Same with the church. We have to go by what the Lord says the church is. And one of the first things that God teaches in Scripture is that His church is, in fact, one. The Lord Jesus says it quite plainly in John 10, verse 16. You might wish to turn there for a moment. I'll, I'll deal with those few, few verses in John 10, verse 16. And I have other sheep, He says, that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. One flock, not two flocks, not a hundred or a thousand flocks, a single flock, says the Lord. And the second thing we learn in this verse is that the church is a gathering of sheep. Christ is telling us here that he already has a flock and that he's constantly adding sheep to the flock. We have to let the full weight of that sink in. You see, the church is not man's invention. It's Christ's creation. It's his flock. The Father, we know from elsewhere in John, gave to the Son a certain number of sheep. 
Jesus then came to earth to die for those sheep, not for the goats, but for the sheep that he was given. And now he's busy gathering in those sheep from out there, wherever they might be, he's gathering them into the assembly, into the flock, to be tended by him as their one shepherd. That's what the very word congregation means. You are the congregation in Ancaster. To congregate means to meet together. It's to assemble. It's to gather. It's the same with that word ecclesia that we meet quite often in the New Testament. It's the Greek word uh, underneath the word church. The ecclesia, the church, is literally those who have been called out from wherever they were in order to assemble together. It's a called out meeting. In Bible times, it was quite common. They didn't have uh, text or email, as you know. They, they, they would send a herald running through the city, announcing in the streets a certain time for a particular meeting. Maybe it was a town meeting. Maybe it was a meeting with a royal official. Or in our case, it could be the gathering to meet with the Lord God. The gathering of the church, of the people. Israel in the Old Testament was called the Ecclesia, the church of God, the congregation of Yahweh. It was an identifiable group which regularly assembled to meet with their God in holy worship. So the picture the Lord Jesus gives us is there are individual sheep of His, so the elect chosen by the Father from before creation that have been given to the Son. Those sheep are out there somewhere in the world and they need to be brought into the fold and then they will be part of the flock. And a flock of sheep is quite visible, isn't it? A gathering of people is quite plain to see. I mean, I see you right now. Nothing invisible about the church at Ancaster. The church is not invisible any more than elders, deacons, and a minister are invisible, any more than the sacraments are invisible. How could Christ appoint office bearers like we did this morning to govern in the invisible church? Doesn't work. How could the Lord's Supper and baptism be administered in an invisible church? The Bible never speaks that way, and we should not think that way about the church. Let's be careful to speak as the Scriptures speak. The church is an observable gathering of God's people that can even be numbered. People either belong to the church or, or they don't. They're in or they're out. The church of Israel of old, the old covenant, it could be numbered. Moses numbered it. That's why we have a book called Numbers. David numbered it in his day. And the church of the apostles in the New Testament could also be numbered. Acts chapter 2, verse 41, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. If the church was invisible, it couldn't be counted and yet the numbers are there in Scripture. People heard the shepherd's voice 
In Acts 2, when Peter preached that sermon, he heard it through the preaching of the apostles. They heard it through the preaching. And those who were truly the sheep in that crowd listened to his voice. They came to faith and they entered into the sheep pen to join the flock, to join the gathering, to become members of Christ's church. This is emphasized also in Article 27. Opening sentence, we believe and profess one Catholic or universal church, which is a holy congregation and assembly of the true Christian believers who expect their entire salvation in Jesus Christ, are washed by his blood, and are sanctified and sealed by the Holy Spirit. One church, one congregation. That's not what we see with our eyes. But by faith, we believe this to be the case. We believe that this is what Christ has, one flock. And this is what Christ is working on, one flock. We have to keep in mind that the gathering work of Christ is very much a work in progress. The church exists, it's actually always existed in the world since man was created, but the Lord Jesus is dynamically adding to it as he says, there are other sheep, right? That's in verse 16. There are other sheep that are not of this fold. I need to bring them in too. That's a process. I need to bring them in. They're not in yet, but I'm going to bring them in. Acts 2 that famous sermon of Peter and all through the book of Acts, we see the same thing. At the command of Jesus Christ, the preaching goes out. The Spirit of Christ is sent out with the preaching. And when the preaching hits the hearts of people and the Spirit with it, the people's hearts are turned. Repentance sets in. The gift of faith is given to the elect. And another believer and another believer and another believer enters the assembly of the church. They come to the gathering, end of Acts chapter 2. They assembled and they were praying and they were fellowshipping together as a community. You see, Article 27 gives us the picture of the church from the perspective of the Good Shepherd who himself knows all the sheep already. Jesus Christ says that in John 10 as well. I know my sheep. I know all my sheep. All the flock is known to him, and so in his mind's eye, Jesus sees the church as it currently is, but also as the church will one day be. He knows the sheep that he has yet to gather in. Like an architect makes up plans, blueprints for a beautiful building, and the architect, in his mind's eye, he knows how that building is going to look when it's all said and done. So also the Lord Jesus Christ, the master builder of God's house, the shepherd of God's sheep, he knows how the flock is going to look when it's all gathered in. But from now until the final day, there will continue to be a great deal of activity on Christ's part, he's the one doing the work, gathering in his sheep, even winnowing his flock, right? He talks in Scripture about the need to 
separate out of the flock those who don't truly belong there through the course of discipline. The uh, branches that don't produce fruit are pruned out of the vine, John 15. Now, Lord's Day 21, which we read, question and answer 54 of the Catechism, it stresses all of that activity. While in Article 27, we're really getting the, the overall picture of the norm. We're, we're getting, you could say, a picture of the underlying reality in all that activity that we see on the surface right now. The church as it will be. The church in the mind of God. Just like a building process is not always neat and tidy, there's quite often a lot of mess along the way. If you go by a building site, sheep coming into a sheepfold, they often leave their own kind of mess. And as we learn elsewhere, there are goats among the flock. So the church right now is not a finished product. We should not expect it to be a finished product in the here and now. It's a work in progress. It's not a perfect work, therefore. It's under construction. That's why the church is also a matter of faith. It's a matter of faith and trust in Christ and His work, what He's doing. We may not see the church as one. We may not experience the, the fullness of its unity, but we trust because the Scriptures say that Christ has one flock, and in the end, we will see what we now believe, that there is one flock, complete and lacking in nothing. There's this um, tension, you could say, between what is right now and what will be. And the New Testament is fully aware of this tension. Many times the apostle describes the church as one, and yet just as freely he and the other apostles speak of many churches, various churches in the plural, in different geographical locations. And yet they never thought of those as two different entities. Each local church of Jesus Christ, with faithful, a faithful church then, is the one church of Christ he's gathering at that particular location. You could say that Christ makes his, his one Catholic church known in each location of believers who are, are gathered together faithfully following the voice of the Good Shepherd. One day there will be a single gathering around the throne, a massive assembly, as we read in Revelation, but until that day it remains an ongoing construction site, a work in progress. It's a dynamic work that is truly Catholic in nature. That's what the Good Shepherd is getting at when he says in John 10 that he's got these other sheep who are not of this fold, but who nevertheless must be brought in. So in John 10, we know that from our earlier sermons on John, the Lord Jesus is speaking there to the Jews, to Israelites. They were the original flock of God. Even as we sang from Psalm 100, God their shepherd, the Israelites the flock. God had covenanted with Abraham and his offspring. When Jesus then speaks of other sheep, then he's talking about adding into that flock of Israel non-Israelites. In other words, he's speaking there about adding in Gentiles, people like you and me. This was radical 
for the Israelites that Jesus was speaking to because they had more or less figured themselves to be privileged, kind of exclusive. They were the unique flock of God. Gentiles were for many centuries looked down upon. You could have a few proselytes who came in, but generally the Gentiles were a dark spot in their thinking. They were unworthy of God's attention, let alone God's salvation. Leave the Gentiles to themselves. Yet the good shepherd comes in the midst of his sheep and he announces that he has sheep from outside this flock, this Jewish sheep pen. He's got Gentiles who belong to him for whom he will soon lay down his life that he will one day then gather into his existing Jewish flock and he will make out of the two one flock. He's announcing that very soon the church will be made up of people from every country in the world. And that's the basic meaning of that word Catholic. We have that here in, in the Belgian Confession. We have it in the Apostles' Creed. And when you hear the word Catholic, you might think Roman Catholic Church, but don't think that. Certainly not in this context because the word Catholic, small c, just means extending around the globe. It means that Christ is gathering His church from, from all parts of the world, from all the families of the nations of the, of the world, just like God promised to Abram in Genesis 12. I will make you, Abram, a blessing to all the families of the earth. That's been happening since Pentecost. From all around the globe and from all throughout time, the Son of God is bringing in His chosen lambs. Article 27 describes it in the last paragraph. This holy church is not confined or limited to one particular place or to certain persons, but is spread and dispersed throughout the entire world. That's Catholic, and that's also a matter of faith. We can't see what He's doing in most of the world. We can hardly see what He's doing here in Ancaster. Hamilton. But we believe he has one church, Catholic in nature, from around the globe. Well, how do we put that together? One church, but so many churches in the plural. Perhaps an analogy will help. Some of the catechism students may recognize this. If you fly, for example, to Victoria, B.C., and you were to go down to the shore there in Victoria, you would find yourself at the ocean, the Pacific Ocean. And if you were just imagining you have all kinds of money to jump on planes, but bear with me. If you then jumped on your plane and flew down to Los Angeles and went to the shore, you would find yourself at the same Pacific Ocean. Different beach, same ocean. You could repeat this down the coast of North America, South America. You could do this in Peru or in Chile. You could jump over to Australia, to Sydney, and then go up north to Manila in the Philippines or Tokyo in Japan. And at every beach, you would be at the Pacific Ocean. Every beach would have its own feel, wouldn't it? Every beach would have its own look. You'd hear different languages at those various beaches. But in every case, you are still at the one Pacific Ocean. You don't say at any of those beaches, you know, I'm at a Pacific Ocean. You don't even say I'm at part of the Pacific Ocean. You know, you say I dip my foot in the 
Pacific Ocean. You can't, no person can see the whole ocean in one shot. You can't experience the whole ocean in one shot, but it's one big, massive ocean, right? The best we can do is touch down at a few beaches here and there. So it is with the church on the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, one Catholic church, you can find it here in Ancaster. We're the beach, so to speak. But if you were to go on a trip and step into a faithful church somewhere else, say at a United Reformed Church in Saskatchewan or an Orthodox Presbyterian Church in New York, or an underground house congregation in Karaj, Iran, or a Presbyterian church in Gujranwala, Pakistan, or a Reformed church in Silverstream, New Zealand, or in other assemblies, too many to name, too many to count. Or if you were to step, for, uh, step foot in a congregation that we haven't even had any contact with at all, in another tongue, in another nation, Wherever there is a gathering that is faithfully following the voice of the Good Shepherd, there you have the one Catholic Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and there you would find a home because you belong to that church. This is the thrilling picture of Revelation 7, which we read, where the Lord Jesus reveals here the, the great future of the church to, to his servant John. John writes in verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude whom no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. Right now, at this moment, we see the church flung around the globe, as it were, in small gatherings. We just pick a, we can get a glimpse of it in small gatherings under local under-shepherds. But on the day that Christ comes back, there will be one single gathering. And it's going to be massive, right? A gigantic multitude. Think about this. From every country, every nation, every tongue, every dialect, and not just the tongue, nation, dialect of that day, but from all throughout the history of the world, all the sheep that Christ has gathered into himself, they will be resurrected and brought together in one place and one time, gathered around the throne of the Lamb as his church, one flock. And what does it say about this Lamb? In verse 17, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's John 10 and it's John 7 all over again, isn't it? One shepherd guiding one flock to drink from the living water that only he can provide. A single flock that will be gathered in in all security and safety. The church really is a marvelous thing in all of its weakness. It is a 
remarkable work of God Almighty. Just think of ourselves, right? Like, like we are so powerless in ourselves. 300-odd souls here in Ancaster, what holds us together? Why do we keep standing on our feet? Why do we keep making a go out of church life week in and week out? An unbeliever who would observe our assembly might be puzzled. Like, what is it about these people? Why do they keep hanging out together week after week? Why are they willing to give of their money, like a fair bit of their money, of their time, of their energy for the church and to help each other in the church and to spread the gospel elsewhere? To an unbeliever, they might think, well, th these people, if they use their money and their time, they could get a whole lot more fun and enjoyment out of life if they did other things. Why are they here? And yet here we are, right? Week after week, drawn together. Why are we drawn together? Why do we stick together? You think it's because of us? The power of Christ at work in you, at work in me. The Spirit of Christ and His Word gathering us together. We're drawn together. And it's that power, brothers and sisters, that will keep the flock together throughout time. It will preserve the church in the day of temptation and the day of persecution. And those days will come. Those days have already come. They've been here actually throughout history, as our confession alludes to. Already in the days of the prophet Elijah, that's what Article 27 is making reference to. You remember Elijah, who was such a powerful witness for God, performing these stunning miracles and stirring up the hearts of the people so vividly. And yet for all of his work, for all that he did, I mean, calling fire down from the sky and raising the dead. At a certain moment, Elijah thought it was all lost. He was the only one, the only one left. Elijah became depressed. He became dejected. He wanted to die. He prayed that the Lord would take his life away. Crying out to God was, was all that he could think to do, that he was the only one left. You know what the Lord said to Elijah in response? Among other things, the Lord said this, and I quote, Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel. All those knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. The Lord said, I reserve. You don't see it, Elijah. You think you're a loner. But I've got my people. 7,000 in store. I reserve. Even if the church looks like nothing to us, the Lord says, I have my people yet. And now the Father has raised up his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, placed him on the throne in heaven. He, the good shepherd, and he's given him the control and him the authority. What does the Lord Jesus say in John 10, verse 27? My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one can snatch them from my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them 
from my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The sheep who belong to the shepherd, they cannot be snatched away, you see? No lion can tear them to pieces. No bear can maul them or carry them away. No snake can poison them unto death. For the good shepherd is watching and he's protecting and he's caring. The flock is secure. The church is safe in his hands. Always. Not that the flock will not suffer. We should not get that part wrong. Not that Christians sometimes do suffer. We do. Again, all through Scripture, you can see that. The elder speaking to John in Revelation 7, he explains that this multitude that John sees are the ones coming out of something he calls the great tribulation. They've washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So the the Lord God has brought them in. They shall hunger no more. They shall thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. So there's something called the great tribulation. We're going through that. The church has been going through that since Pentecost until the Lord returns. It's this whole time period. It's a troubled time. Why? Because the devil, Satan, is trying his best to destroy the church. But the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, Revelation 7, is this. My people, they shall come through the great tribulation. I will bring them through the trouble, through the persecution, through the temptation, and I will shelter them. It's a picture of a tent. I will put up a tent over them with my very own presence. The flock belongs to me, and I will bring my flock safely home to me. Amen.